It was to be a quick trip. Wolf Tone O'Rourke had flown in from Dublin to stay with his friends Liv and Willie Bloomer in their Central Park West apartment. At noon, he took the number one train downtown to Christopher Street. He emerged from the subway in front of Village Cigars, which had been there since he was a kid. Instinctively, he looked for the World Trade Center. It should have been just to the right of the slanted slate roof of Greenwich House on Barrow Street, but it wasn't. The Twin Towers had been immortalized by the politicians and the pundits. The truth, O'Rourke knew, was that they had never really been taken into the hearts of New Yorkers before they died. They had been tolerated, but not cherished like the Empire State or the Woolworth and Chrysler buildings. Stunningly sterile in their simplicity, most referred to them as cereal boxes. The only time O'Rourke was ever really glad to see them was when they punctuated the flatness of the Jersey Turnpike like paired lighthouses, their beacons reassuring him that he was close to home. O'Rourke could see them from his walk-up tenement on Charles Street. He had watched the towers fall from his living room. When the second plane hit, in fear, he made a perfect act of contrition for himself. Then, feeling ashamed of his solipsism, he said another for the innocents who had been tricked into another dimension. And on September 12, 2001, he had smelled them. As the air from Ground Zero drifted north to the village, it had brought its own pungent scent. At first O'Rourke couldn't place it, but then it came back to him in a replay from his horror days in Vietnam. It was the smell of incinerated flesh. The aroma made when extreme heat vaporizes human beings. In Vietnam, napalm did the trick. Here in New York, it took Boeing jets. And as O'Rourke stood in Sheridan Square on this clear day and gazed, there was only a ghostly slot where the Twin Towers had once stood. He had come downtown to say goodbye to Hogan's Moat, the great saloon at 59 Christopher Street. Standing in front of Village Cigars, waiting to cross 7th Avenue, he could not escape the grip this little square bordered by 7th Avenue, Christopher, West 4th, and Grove Streets had had on his life. He had crossed it at least once a day for nearly 50 years. His parents had crossed it, and his friends had crossed it. They were all gone now, all dead. But if they were to come back, they probably wouldn't recognize it. Sheridan Square had been made possible by the city's growth. During World War I, the city had plowed right down the middle of the village to make way for the new IRT subway line and the new street that sat on top of it, 7th Avenue South. Instead of making the street fit the buildings, the city just sawed them off, sometimes right in the middle, to make them fit precisely to the sides of the new thoroughfare. Still waiting for the light to change, O'Rourke thought back forty years to how the square used to be. The Starbucks on Grove Street used to be Jack Delaney's, a saloon housed in a wonderful nineteenth-century brownstone. Delaney's was an old speakeasy, and its most distinctive oddity was the sulky cart hanging from the ceiling in the main dining room. The great character actor, the late Jack Warden, had lived in an apartment above. Everybody knew Jack's face, but no one knew his name. He was the trusty enlisted man who protected sub-captain Clark Gable in Run Silent, Run Deep, and Paul Newman's mentor in The Verdict. Most famously, he was juror number seven in Twelve Angry Men, the guy who wants to get out of there but fast because he has tickets to the Yankees game. Jack, too, used to drink at the moat. As O'Rourke looked at the banal green trademarked veneer of Starbucks, 
He remembered how animated Delaney's facade used to be with its red, green, blue, and white neon sign of jumping steeplechase horses. As a small boy, after shopping at the A&P on Christopher Street with his mother, he would stand absolutely delighted, mouth agape, as the horses hopped incessantly, always clearing the hedges, never falling or hurting themselves. Next to Starbucks was the Chase Bank. Originally, it had been the Corn Exchange Bank, and if you looked closely, you could still see Corn Exchange bleeding through the stone, stubbornly refusing to be washed away by time and progress. On the other side of Starbucks had stood the notorious Duchess Dyke Bar. The doorman was his friend, Harry Whiting, who resembled a refrigerator in a pork pie hat. When men saw women going in, they would try to follow, but they would not get past Harry. This is a ladies' bar, pal, Harry would explain.